Well, dear brothers and sisters, I want to uh, draw your attention this morning to the book of Revelation. So, will you turn first of all to chapter 1? The book of Revelation, chapter 1, just verse 1 through 3, and then to chapter 5. The opening verses of chapter 1 form an introduction, very necessary and relevant. So, we will read from Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then, chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, we'll read the chapter, 14 verses, so beginning in verse 1, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw, this is John, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures... And the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all is in them saying, Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. Let us pray together. Now, Father, as we come into Your presence to hear Your word, we ask especially that the Holy Spirit would help us in this great book of Revelation. We ask for wisdom. We ask for understanding. We ask for insight. For we are foolish and prone to all kinds of ideas. So we ask, Father, that you would help us as we consider together uh, this glorious chapter about the Lamb. Because worthy is the Lamb. So we ask these things now and for your help in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One of the great dangers I think anybody has or faces when they come to the book of Revelation is that we are so often tempted to read this great prophecy, this great book, the book of Revelation, in the light of the prevailing conditions of our world. Right now our world is facing tragedy and pain and war and famine and all kinds of difficulties and troubles And we tend to take this book of Revelation and we tend to take what's happening in the world and kind of force it, the events of the world, into the book of Revelation using the book of Revelation to prove what is happening in the world. There's a very great danger to doing that. In fact, I think that is not the purpose and not the way we should read this revelation at all, this revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I hope... Uh, Lord willing today and perhaps in the the next few weeks to spend a little bit of time in some of these great passages that we have before us, like this one this morning in Revelation chapter 5. God gave to this apostle, John, some remarkable words that he wrote down for us. Through the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, We have in our hands, in our Bibles, incredible statements that are made by perhaps the youngest disciple, the youngest apostle, the Apostle John, as he wrote uh, these great truths that we find in our Bibles. For instance, there is the Gospel of John, isn't there? And in the Gospel of John, what do we read and what do we find? We find great declarations about the Son of God. So that John's Gospel gives us a theology that is profound and that is rich and of such incredible depth that what we usually do when we uh, find someone who is interested in the Bible or spiritual things, we give them the Gospel of John. We say to them, read that. Read that and you'll get an idea of who we believe and who we're talking about. And so in the Gospel of John, these remarkable demonstrations to prove the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Son of God. But John has done more than just give us this incredible Gospel. He has given us his epistles, hasn't he? 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But primarily, when you read 1 John, that is an epistle that is all about how we are to love one another because Christ and because God has loved us. And what a tremendous book, First John, is, isn't it? I mean, it's a scary book. It's a frightening book. 
Because when you read over and over again the, the qualifications or the stipulations that are made about someone who says they are a Christian, you get a little frightened when you realize that you just don't measure up to what John is saying. Such an easy language that he uses in 1 John. And then in 2nd and 3rd John, writing about the same themes, but to people, to individuals. Just wonderful truths about the love of God in Christ Jesus and the confession that we're all called upon to make. But here we come this morning to the final compilation of the writings of this apostle, the apostle John, this glorious book, the book of Revelation. I have made it my practice for many, many years now to read the book of Revelation once a month, so I get through it 12 times a year just in my general reading. Because I have long recognized the value and the importance and the significance that this book has. Difficult though it may be, troublesome as it is to many, many people. Yet it is a wonderful book and it's a glorious book that we are called upon, I think, to spend time, even though it's at the end of our Bibles and there are many difficult things in it, we should spend time reading this. This book of Revelation is primarily about Christ and about his victory, about his triumph, his triumph over a dragon and his triumph over a beast, his triumph over the world, his triumph over sin. This is a, a great letter from this apostle who is on an island in captivity for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. And there, in visions that are so stupendous and so glorious, he has given a picture of Jesus Christ like no other picture in all of Scripture to draw our attention to this King who suffered and died and who now reigns victorious in heaven and who is going to come again in such great power and glory such that he who is faithful and true is declared to be the Word of God. Not only that, but King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And those are the kinds of things that, that get a grip on my soul as I read the, this book, the book of Revelation. We read chapter 1 because chapter 1 and those opening verses are so important. For instance, you look at verse 1 of chapter 1 and it puts it like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants, and then you have this phrase, the things that must soon take place. And if you miss that phrase, frankly, you miss the book of Revelation. The things that must soon take place. And the things, John says in ch chapter 1 verse 1, that must soon take place are because in chapter 1 verse 3, he says, the end of verse 3, because the time is near, or to put it another way, the time is at hand. This is a great book written to seven churches of Asia Minor. There they are, languishing in the Roman Empire, facing persecution, facing suffering, and to those seven churches, Jesus Christ delivers a message to each church. A message that is so urgent because the time is near and the time is short and these things must soon take place, Jesus says. And so to those seven churches, we find this book of Revelation that is given. This is a book that is 
for the seven churches. If you lose sight of the seven churches, you lose sight again of the book of Revelation. Because it is written to those ancient churches about the very things that they were facing in their own time. And this revelation is designed to help those Christians 2,000 years ago. It is not as so many interpreters of today want to make it, something for the far distant future with many of its writings unfulfilled and not complete. To do that, in my opinion, is to read into the book of Revelation many things that are not there. This is a book, because the time is short and because the time is near, that these are the things that must take place for the seven churches and for their lives. Of course, what the Spirit says to the churches, He says to all the churches. And so what may be said to Ephesus is said to Philadelphia, and so on. All the promises, all the warnings, all the rebukes, all the commendations, all the condemnations by Jesus are valid for every church. And yes, down through the centuries, we as Christians have faced the same tests and the same temptations. And so there is a sense in which this glorious book is applicable to every generation and to every Christian who reads it. In fact, you gain an immense benefit, don't you? According to the words of Jesus, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. When you get to the end of the book, chapter 22, same blessing is poured out. Blessed are those who read and who keep this prophecy and this word. No, this is a revelation that is about things that are soon to take place. It is written, directed, as I said, to these seven churches of Asia Minor. And according to chapter 1 and verse 11, the Apostle John was to write to those seven churches all the things that he saw. And that word saw is a prophetic word which simply points to the things that are uh, to be seen in a vision. And that's exactly what John who says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I saw all of these things that we read about in the book. He is to take what he sees and he is to write it down and he is to send it to the seven churches for their good, for their welfare, for their spiritual encouragement. To Ephesus to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And we learn from each of those churches important spiritual lessons even for our own day and for our own spiritual lives. These words, Jesus says in Revelation 22 verse 6, they are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angels to show His servants what must soon take place. That's at the end of the book of Revelation, agreeing with chapter 1 and verses 1 and 3. When you read this book, you sense that there is an urgency about what Jesus wants to say, about what Jesus is communicating to a church, to churches that are languishing, that are troubled by many, many things. And so there's an urgency. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book. Chapter 22 says, for the time is near. The time is near. So think about these things. Don't seal it up and put it away and forget about what I'm saying, Jesus says. Think about these words. 
Put them into your hearts and into your minds because every day you have to go out into the world and you have to face the dragon, as it were, and you have to live in the world and you have to live for Christ at the same time. The time is near. Three times Jesus says in the last chapter of the book in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. So to say when we read this book that it is complex and profound would be to make the greatest understatement that one could ever make. It is complex. It is profound. It is hard at times to read and to understand. And Christians have wrestled with it for centuries. In fact, I dare say there's not one of us having read the book of Revelation has not wrestled with it in our own day, in our own time. I find it interesting that the great John Calvin never wrote a commentary on this book of Revelation. No, he wrote commentaries on every other book, but when it came to Revelation, hands off. Because it's the difficulty and the hardness of the text that he found. And it still causes me difficulties and you difficulties. I can guarantee that every time I read it, you see something a little different and you wonder, well, how does that fit in with this prophecy and this book? And it's so easy, isn't it, to get confused when you read the book of Revelation. That, because of the difficulty, leads many to be apprehensive, many to be troubled. But I want to say to all of us this morning, in spite of the difficulties we have with Revelation, let us never neglect Revelation. These are the words of Jesus to churches, and therefore they are valid words and instructions from Jesus to our church, to every church around the world. I mean, John has given these visions fantastic images, incredible visions, symbols, and numbers, and figures as we go through the book of Revelation. That's why we rightly call this book apocalyptic literature. Just like we call Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament, it is apocalyptic literature. In fact, the word revelation is the word, the Greek word apocalypsis, which is the word for apocalypse. It is apocalyptic language. Revelation, the unveiling, the revealing, the making known, the making plain, the making clear, stripping away that which is confusing so that we can grasp, the seven churches can grasp what Jesus is saying. Couched in prophetic language like you read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, this prophetic language with its strong features of apocalyptic writing, which is the key feature, by the way, to the book of Revelation. This book that is, that is placed in your hands and my hands, the best way to read it and the finest way to understand it is always to remind yourself of the great Reformation principle that we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. That is the number one rule of hermeneutics. That in understanding Scripture, I must look to other Scriptures to understand. And so if you read Revelation by itself, you come away from Revelation. Well, what does it mean? How do I understand? Some things I can see so clearly, and other things I've got no comprehension. What does he mean? 
Let us never forget that our Bibles are given to us by the Spirit of God. And if we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, it's so that we can understand the truths that the Spirit reveals. And it is the Spirit that reveals these wonderful things to us. So, for example, if I can show you a little bit of what I mean. For instance, look at chapter 1 and the explanation that you read of in verse 20 of chapter 1. So Jesus says, as for the mystery, verse, this is verse 20 of chapter 1, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And there you can see quite plainly the seven stars, there are seven angels or messengers, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. But you go back up in the chapter and look at verse 12. John hears this voice, write what you see in a book, in verse 11. And he says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And you can picture lampstands in your mind, can you not? Seven of them. But when you get to verse 20, the seven lampstands are seven churches. So now you know that the vision that John sees when he looks at the seven golden lampstands, it's Jesus actually standing in the midst of seven churches, in the presence of His bride, in the presence of His people. And then if you look at verse 16, in His right hand, seven stars He holds. From His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and His face like the sun shining in full strength. And when you get to verse 20, it says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so when you read chapter 2 and chapter 3, each message addressed to the churches is the angel that uh, of the church of Sardis or whatever write these things. So it's to the angels or through the angels who are the messengers. So we have to acknowledge sometimes the book of Revelation tells us and gives us the understanding of the symbolism. And then at other times it says nothing about it at all, and that's why we experience difficulties. When I come across something that's difficult in my Bible, it only makes me exercise deeper care and to be more careful and more restrained in what I say about what God's Word says. I find there's so many people today, and for a long time, in fact, all my Christian life, who have been saying how easy the book of Revelation is or how easy the book of Daniel is. I've never found those books to be easy at all. I find them to be most incredibly difficult. And after reading them for years and years, still deep, still profound, learning new things. So I hold myself back in making declarations. And I trust that even this morning, I will be able to do that, to hold myself back from some of the magnificent things that we read about here. In fact, whenever you read your Bible, read it in dependence always upon God the Holy Spirit, to help you to understand His Word. Now, you know, everything that John has written 2,000 years ago is of validity for us this morning. Because all of Scripture is like that. It doesn't matter what you read in the Bible. All of it is profitable. All of it is necessary. All of it is excellence for our own Christian experience. So as far as I am concerned, and I'm sure as you are concerned, God's Word is always fresh. God's Word comes to us with new power every time we read it, every day we read it, and it conveys, like the, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, conveys blessings, untold blessings 
upon us if we read it. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, our Lord says. So I say, let us never abuse revelation, but let us use revelation, right, to understand what God has revealed. Now every time somebody preaches or speaks about the book of Revelation, everybody wants to know what scheme of eschatology you hold to. And I don't have the time, and this is not the time, frankly, to go into an explanation of all the various approaches and schemes of eschatology that we have. Instead, I am interested only this morning in focusing on one central dominant theme, which is the central dominant theme of the entire book, and that is Jesus Christ. That is none other than our Lord Jesus. He is the theme of this book. In fact, He is the key to the book of Revelation. So when you read chapter 1, John has that incredible, glorious vision of one who stands among the golden lampstands, who is exalted, who is different. The pictures he sees of him, a sword coming out of his mouth, feet that are burnished bronze in the fires, and so on. All of those descriptive pictures that he gives in chapter 1 are just a glorious vision of no one else or none else than our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that Jesus says, as John collapses before him at the sight of this vision, when he says, I am the first, and I am the last. I am the living one. I died, but I am alive forevermore. So, John, fear not. I've conquered death. You have nothing to be afraid of. As he shines in the glory of that sun striking the Apostle John. Doesn't the uh, book of Revelation tell us that Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. This is Jesus then, who describes Himself and who John writes of in this great letter. Like Ezekiel of old and like Daniel of old, particularly Ezekiel, John is caught up to heaven, right? Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and it would be helpful to look at chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, the voice of chapter 1, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So like Ezekiel, John is caught up, isn't he, to the throne room of God to the presence of God, to there where God is, where God is seated on His throne. It reminds you, doesn't it, of the vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train, His train, filled the temple. He was filled with glory. I saw the Lord. Isaiah says. John says, that's exactly where I am. I'm in the presence of God. I see God seated on His throne. And as you read chapter 4, there are 24 elders. And there are four living creatures. And you try to get your head around the 24 elders and the four living creatures. It would appear, I think, quite rightly, that the 24 uh, elders are represented of all of redeemed humanity. The church, Jews and Gentiles. That there they are represented by these 24 elders. 12 of whom may represent Israel and 12 who represent the apostles of Jesus. But representing redeemed humanity, 
the blood-bought saints of God. Not only that, but there he is with the four elders, I mean the four living creatures in chapter 4 verses 6 through 8, who are like the seraphim or like the cherubim that Isaiah saw, having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. These creatures that represent a humanity with their different faces, the ox, eagle, man, and so on, all of them representing, all of inanimate creation represented going from the beast all the way up to the man. When you read Ezekiel, those four living creatures have four faces to each person. Each of them contributing the same, reminding Ezekiel that God is sovereign over all of His creation and has made all things. These are the seraphim. Cannot comprehend what they're like, can you? You read about them in Ezekiel. You read about them in Isaiah. You read about them here in Revelation. They are glorious. They're in the presence of God. They're in the throne room of God. And then you notice in chapter 4 verse 5, there are the seven spirits. The seven spirits that are like seven burning torches of fire. And that's simply a reference to the the perfections of God the Holy Spirit who is a fire, a fire to purify, a fire to cleanse, and a fire to destroy, and a fire to judge God the Spirit, the seven spirits of God Himself. You see, everything about heaven and everything in heaven is transcendently, perfectly, absolutely holy and pure. And that's where this youngest apostle, who is now an older man, finds himself in the very living presence of God, seated on his throne. How can anyone not fail to be moved by such reading of such glorious descriptions, right? Do not feel it. I feel it. You can tell I think I feel it. I felt it in my study. I feel it when I read it. Because that's what it is like, isn't it? These four living creatures, there's worship in the 24 elders. The Revelation says they worship God day and night. Day and night in unceasing worship and praise. Notice in chapter 4 verse 8 what it says. It says, they, the four living creatures, having six wings full of eyes around and within, and day and night never cease to say. What is it that they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Simply, they worship God, don't they, in verse 8, for His eternal existence, who was and who is and who is to come. You look at verse 11, they worship God for His creative power. The 24 elders fall down. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So here is the creative power and willing of God. And John finds himself in the midst of this unceasing chorus of worship and of praise in the very presence of of God everlasting. Oh, he is surrounded, isn't he, by lightning that flashes, by loud cracking peals of thunder around the throne, by pure fire in verse 5. 
so much so that there is a rainbow that covers the throne of God, shines like an emerald in verse 3 of chapter 4, a sea of crystal glass before the throne of God as you approach God in verse 6. Can you conceive of the presence of God? Heaven itself? No wonder then the inhabitants of heaven cry out unceasingly, cast their crowns before this living God and bless Him and praise Him and say, worthy is this God. Worthy to be worshipped. And so that brings me then this morning to this chapter 5, which continues from chapter 4 in heaven. John is still there. So notice, will you, with me in chapter 5, verse 1, that John, I saw, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So he sees a seven-sealed scroll. This, this, this wrap of papyrus, this scroll of papyrus or roll of papyrus is sealed with seven seals. You can't get into it. You'd have to break one, break two, break three, break four, all the way to seven. Representing that the contents of the seven sealed scroll are significant and are important. Now you know, papyrus is an interesting thing. It comes, generally speaking, from ancient Egypt. It's like a reed that grows out of the Nile River or other rivers. So maybe like my finger here, and you would cut that reed and then you would slit down the middle of the reed and you would open up that papyrus reed and flatten it. And you take many reeds and you do the same so that you have, you have a piece here and a piece here and a piece here and a piece here and a go. And then you turn it this way and you have piece, 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 piece. You glue them together, you press them down, and you have this piece of parchment paper that you shine and work at and so on, it becomes useful for writing. In fact, all of the ancient literature of the world is written, of the Bible I say, is written on papyrus and parchment. That's what John sees, a seven-sealed scroll in the right hand of God who is sitting on His throne. And then an angel, you'll notice verse 2 of chapter 5, cries out with a loud voice, doesn't he? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? What a great question. You know why it's a great question? Because the scroll is in the right hand of God. In the hand of Almighty God. Who is going to go up and just take such a scroll out of God's mighty right hand? No one can do that. It's a great question. Who would dare approach the throne? Who would dare go up to God and take this from the right hand of God? The hand of power, the hand of sovereign might. I imagine, dear congregation, because I like to do that. I imagine in verse 3 right here, at the question, right? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look in it. I imagine just for a moment that when the question of verse 2 is asked, that there is absolute silence in heaven. I mean, all this worthy, worthy has been going on, this worship. But when the question is asked, I can imagine that there is absolute silence at the impossibility and the audacity of being and doing such a thing to go up to God and take it from His hand. Who would dare approach our holy God like that? No doubt if there was that brief moment of silence in heaven, it was thunderous in its impact. Who is worthy? 
Who can go? Who can open? I can't comprehend that. That scene that John is experiencing himself. John does the only thing that he can do. He breaks down, doesn't he? In verse 4. And he weeps because no one was found worthy. He's totally overcome by the helplessness and the hopelessness of the situation. Here he is in heaven and no one is found worthy. Surely, surely nothing is hopeless in heaven. Surely nothing is helpless in heaven. But he weeps because no one is worthy who is able to open and able to see or to look into it. I confess to you, dear brothers and sisters, it was right at this moment in my study that I myself broke down and wept when I thought about that picture, but I wept because I knew what was coming. And what was coming is verses 5, 6, and 7, right, of chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Ah, isn't that an incredible thing? Can you picture it? Can you picture it? I mean, one of the 24 elders says to John in verse 5, Weep no more, John. Stop your crying. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has conquered. He can open the scroll. And you know, from that brief moment of silence, I can imagine that there is at this very moment a mighty roar that breaks out, an immense engine that is starting to come to life in heaven again, that there is one who is worthy. And John looks for the lion. But what does he find? I see a lamb slain, he says. Blood pictured on the lamb as if he had been killed. I look for the lion. Verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And what does that lamb who looks as though he had been slain do? I mean, what can a lamb do really? Ah, He goes up to God on His throne and He reaches out His hand to the right hand of God and He takes the scroll from God's hand. And then all of heaven... In Revelation chapter 5, in a crescendo of worship breaks out in adoration and in praise that there is just one in all of heaven who is worthy to do such an incredible thing. Down go the four living creatures, verse 8, right? Down go the 24 elders, verse 8, with their harps and the prayers of the saints like Old Testament incense that rose to God as a pleasing aroma, so to the prayers of the saints of God's people, arise to God and He smells them. They go down. They break out, He says, verse 9 and 10, in a new song, in verse 9 and 10, in adoration and praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign 
on earth. And verse 11 says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now I don't know if you've ever tried to compute myriads of myriads, but usually it's ten thousands times ten thousands, and thousands times thousands. Some have calculated that the population of working that out is some 100 trillion inhabitants. I don't know if that's right. But you can imagine heaven is filled with a multitude that no man can number. We're told a number of times. And all those angels say with loud voices, Worthy, verse 12, is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then, it's not finished. From every creature everywhere. Notice verse 13. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and forever. And the four living creatures, they agree with that. And the 24 elders, they agree with that. And they collapse, don't they, before the Lamb. And verse 14, they worship God and the Lamb. Our dear congregation, you see what worship is? Something special, isn't it? Something glorious. Something you feel. Something unique. But it's only the worship of God. Nobody can ever experience worship like the worship of God. If you worship an idol, it is nothing. It is false worship. It is not true worship. It can do nothing. But this is the true and genuine and real praise of the living God. This is true worship. What a worship service was going on in heaven. In chapter 4 and chapter 5. What a glorious worship service. Ah, doesn't that tell you how glorious heaven must be? Do you not get just a little picture of what heaven is going to be like? The worship of God and the worship of His Lamb. Isn't it amazing that here we are this morning with our feeble little worship that God says, I am pleased to accept. You know why? Because I accept my beloved Son. And so all of our worship is accepted by God because God accepts His Son because of the Lamb. So I consider with you this morning briefly then, why is this Lamb worthy? What is it about Him that makes Him worthy as John or as they all cry out? What makes Him worthy? I mean, that's the question of verse 2, right? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? And we have found out in chapter 5 who actually is worthy. First of all, the one who is worthy is said to be the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. What does that mean? It means in very simple terms that there is a man in heaven, a man in heaven, who is of the tribe of Judah and who is the root of David. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is descended physically. Now here's the point. He is descended, this man, this lamb in heaven, physically, directly from David the king himself. Therefore he is kingly. Therefore he is the king. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 7 and verse 14, it is evident then that our Lord was descended from Judah in talking about the priestly uh, tribe of Aaron in comparison with Melchizedek. You remember all the promises God made in 2 Samuel 7 to King David? 
to his descendants, he will build a house. I will make of his kingdom and his throne so glorious it will have no end. Speaking ultimately not about Solomon, but about our Lord Jesus Christ himself, that this throne and kingdom would never end. Isn't that why Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 9, as he thinks on the vision that he sees, he says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. He is the wonderful counselor, isn't he? He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. That's who he is. And Gabriel, when he gave a message to Mary about the, the baby that was to be born, the son to be born, said he will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he said God has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. No question, this lamb is David's royal son, the man. But will you notice verse 5 of chapter 5? He is said to be the root of David. What does that mean? That means that King David comes from him. You see the picture? Here is one descended from David, and then the other picture, David is descended from him. He is the root of David. He is therefore the pre-existent, as we know, eternal Son of God. And it is through the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ that the root of David becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Or as Isaiah puts it in chapter 11, verse 1, the root of Jesse has become the shoot of Jesse, this worthy lamb. This is why Jesus says in Revelation 22:16, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. That's the Lamb. That's who He is. And so here then in chapter 5 is a solid, unassailable defense of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I say to all of you, learn it, use it, Think on it. Meditate on it. Here is Jesus, not just descended from David, but David descended from Him. He is the Son of God who became the Son of Man. For us, this is the worthy Lamb. His origin is from of old. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And didn't Jesus say to those Pharisees on the day they questioned Him before Abraham was, I am. John chapter 8. There's no question about the pre-existence of Jesus Christ and there's no question about the incarnation and the existence of our Lord in human flesh. That's the lion as he appears. But then John says, when I looked at the lion, I saw a lamb. I saw a lamb. And verse 6 says, I saw a lamb standing. Here is the answer then to who is worthy. He is standing between God and everybody else. Jesus is on the Father's side, if I can put it like that, of the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the angelic hosts of heaven and every other creature, all the saints of God. There's just Jesus between them and God. There's the Lamb. I saw a Lamb standing, He says, before Almighty God. Is He our mediator standing between God and men. 
this man Jesus Christ. What is it that makes him worthy, though? Well, verse 6 says, as though it had been slain. Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, killed, dead. I mean, isn't that the meaning of being slain? To experience death? But notice the consequence of the death of the slain of the Lamb. Verse 9, you ransomed people for God. So here is the Lamb who is now displayed as the Redeemer of all of God's people or the Redeemer as the confessions tell us or the catechisms tell us of God's elect, of God's people. Is He not our Passover Lamb slain for us? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. This is the Lamb. He is the Lamb, isn't He, of Isaiah chapter 53, who was like a lamb led to its slaughter. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought me peace, He bore Himself. And by His wounds, I have been healed, ransomed, redeemed by the slain of the Lamb for me. Do you know that there are 29 references to the Lamb in the book of Revelation? I mean, there's only 22 chapters. So that means one and fraction in every chapter. You could say, it's about the Lamb, isn't it? This whole book, the Lamb is everywhere in Revelation. I find that comforting because it's not the dragon, and it's not the beast, and it's not the second beast, the false prophet, who are paramount at all. They just get a small little attention. But it's the Lamb who is central in all of the book. He's not only redeemed us with His precious blood, ransomed us, but the text says He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to our God. Do you know what that means? That means we belong to Him in His kingdom and we approach God as priests. Isn't that one of the beauties of being a Christian? That we can go directly to God in our praying, in our lives, and approach Him through our mediator, through the Lamb slain for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not need some priestly system or some church system to enable us to go to God. No, we go through the Lamb who was slain for us. And so our King then, the Lion, has given us His kingdom, and our Savior, the Lamb, has made us His people and His servants. His ministers. And when has He done that? Verse 10, Here and now on earth they shall reign with Him on earth. We reign because Jesus reigns right now as King of kings and as Lord of lords in His kingdom both now and forever. Ah, this Lamb slain. Seven horns He's described as having. You see that verse 6? What are the seven horns? Horns, by the way, in the Old Testament are symbols of kingly strength, of power. To have seven of them, which is a reference to perfection or to totality and completion, the symbols of strength represent the seven horns, the divine omnipotence of the Lamb. Who can conquer the Lamb? He's the one who conquers. Not only that, but notice this Lamb who's slain has seven eyes. Seven spirits sent out. Reminiscent, by the way, of Isaiah chapter 19 and Zechariah chapter 4. The seven eyes 
that are sent out, as it were. Here is divine sovereign omniscience sees everything, nothing hidden from his sight, your sin, your heart, your mind, mine, not hidden. Everything is open to the sight of Christ. Seven eyes, perfection in his sight, and now that the man Christ Jesus is in heaven, he has sent his Holy Spirit, who is omniscient himself, to be his eyes, as it were, This then is the Lamb, this then is the Lion, the eternal Son of God made flesh who died for you and for me. So as the Lion, He has power and authority. As the Lamb, He has humility and self-offering. He gives Himself. That's what makes Him worthy. That's what makes Him worthy. Do you not have a worthy Savior? You do, and I do. Here He is incarnate, sinless, slain. Here He is dead, alive again, and glorified and sovereign. Here He is. He has conquered for us. He's the conqueror. So that's why, verse 12, yes, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's almost as if you run out of descriptive terms. To ascribe to Him what you think of Him. What does the worthy Lamb mean then for the seven churches. Aha! Here it is. What does he mean for Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea? What does he mean for them? Because that's to whom the book is written. And that's the descriptions given here for them, for their benefit. Don't forget then that it's written to the seven churches. Let me give you two things. There are two reasons why this book of Revelation is given to these seven churches, to all of the seven churches, by extension to all Christians and every church everywhere else. Number one, never compromise with the world. Number one. Number two, never contaminate yourself in the world. That's what Israel did in the Old Testament. They compromised and they contaminated themselves. Do you know how they compromised? Idolatry. Do you know how they contaminated themselves? Immorality. These are the two big sins of the Old Testament. These are the two big sins of the world. These are the big sins of people. Do not worship God because I am God. I am higher. I am stronger. I am wiser. I am better. That's what people say. So I do as I please. I live in my flesh. I enjoy life because it doesn't mean a thing. Might as well live today and die tomorrow. Oh, no. No. Those are the weapons of the dragon. Those are the weapons of the beast, but they are not ours. We reject them. We must. So to the seven churches, Jesus comes and says, you are surrounded by Rome. You are surrounded by Nero. You are surrounded by this system of power. Don't compromise with it. And don't contaminate yourself in it. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians is all about? Come out from among them, says the Lord, and be you separate. Be my people. I will be a father. I will be God to you. You shall be my people. Do you know it's easy to compromise, isn't it? It's easy to contaminate yourself. Think of your media devices. Think of them. Think of what they convey to you in your home, in your hand, right now. 
in your pocket. Think of the power of the contamination that is through those things. You can hardly look at anything. And you're contaminated. At least your eyes. And then your mind. And then your heart. You see, the world has come in, isn't it? Even into the church. Jesus says, don't compromise. Don't contaminate yourself. Be my people. Why? Because I was slain for you. I was slain for you. The Lamb has conquered. Look with your eyes of faith and see Him this morning so that you can conquer. So that you can worship the worthy Lamb. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank You for these great truths in Your Word, this great vision that the Apostle John had so long ago, which is of such benefit to us this morning, that we might learn the great lessons of the letters to the seven churches to never engage with the world in compromise and in contamination, but to be bright, shining lights in a dark place. We're surrounded by the world. We will only be free of the world when we get to heaven and are in your presence. But you have made us your people. You have ransomed us from all tribes and languages and nations. And you have made us a kingdom to yourself and priests to our God. So we, we approach you, Father, since we are priests to worship, to draw near. Thank you for this great book and the wonderful lessons it has for us. Help us to learn these this morning. But particularly, Father, thank you for your Son, your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Bright, the Morning Star. And thank you that he is the Lamb, slain from before, as it were, the foundation of the world for his people, to redeem us, to ransom us, to bring us to yourself. What a glorious gospel! has come to us. May each of us this morning then confess it and believe in the worthy Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you take your black hymnals please and turn to number 33. Number 33, we'll sing verse 1 and verse 4 only. Verses 1 and 4 only of our sovereign God. Number 33, let's stand together.